Well, in March 2022, interview 41-year-old Kim Kardashian perfectly captured the spirit of our age when it comes to marriage when she said this. For so long, I did what made other people happy, and I think in the last two years, I decided I'm going to make myself happy. And that feels really good. And even if that created changes and caused my divorce, I think it's important to be honest with yourself about what really makes you happy. I've chosen myself. I think it's okay to choose you. And then she pauses before elaborating and said, my 40s are about being team me. I'm going to eat well, I'm going to work out, I'm going to have more fun, spend more time with my kids and the people who make me happy. You know, in some ways, self-centeredness has always been the problem of the human race, but I think in some ways now more than ever, sociologists are calling us the iGen, the generation of the I, the self. And this doesn't bode well for marriage, which requires self-sacrifice, the giving of self and faithful commitment. So today we come to Yet another controversial subject, that of divorce, and it's not my choice to be here. If you're a guest at Southside, what we do is we just consecutively walk through books of the Bible, and so we've been in Matthew for some time, and now chapter 19 is the next book, so we don't skip verses. So if you've got a Bible, if you'll open up to Matthew chapter 19, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 773. I want to spend a little more time... uh, with some prefatory comments that I normally do before we dive into this text. First, a word to singles. This is going to be a a marriage-heavy sermon because it's a a marriage-heavy text, but come back next week. We'll talk all about singleness in the kingdom of Christ. The Bible dignifies both. Marriage and singleness, both are divine gifts. Both have unique blessings and unique challenges. But as a Christian, regardless of your current state, you ought to care deeply about what God's word says about marriage and divorce. Second, a word to those who've been divorced in this room. And listen, I know that divorce is ubiquitous today. All of us have been touched by divorce in some form or fashion. Both Alicia and I come from broken homes. And what you need to hear loud and clear is if you're divorced, there is grace for you. There is hope for you. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. If you've trusted Christ... There is therefore now no condemnation. You need to hear that. You hear that on the front end because the enemy's name is the accuser and what the temptation and tendency will be to feel condemned and have this unwarranted guilt and shame as we speak about the importance of marriage and the devastating results of divorce. So hear that. The last thing I want for you to do is to feel condemned this morning, but I also want you to love the Lord. I want you to love his word and his word's teaching on this important topic. Third, I think we've got to admit that the church has largely failed in this regard. I take statistics with a grain of salt, but you can find corroborating study after corroborating study that shows that the divorce rate among Christians is way too close to that of non-Christians. And the rate now, generally speaking, of marriage is that only 50% will actually last. 50% of marriages will end in divorce. This is tragic. Tragic. Well, why hasn't the church done well? I I think a few reasons. I think first is that the church, by and large, has lacked a culture of discipleship. 
We haven't been a family. We've been, and some of this is the fault of church leaders, we've created a a consumeristic church so you just come and receive rather than a family of faith that cares about one another. And we haven't built in a, a culture in the church that cares about the spiritual growth of one another. Because when you have marriages that have low points, as all of them do, and you have a culture of discipleship, you can reach out to fellow members of the local church and say, you know what, I need prayer, I need counsel, I need admonition, I need encouragement, I need accountability. A culture of discipleship is vital for all parts of the Christian life and especially for marriage. And so churches who lack a culture of discipleship tend to have failing marriages, but Along with a culture of discipleship, too many churches ignore Jesus' teaching on church discipline. If you haven't been here, I encourage you to go listen to the sermon on Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 20. It was just a few sermons ago. If churches would practice church discipline, those couples who divorce would, without biblical precedent, which we'll say more about that, if churches would divorce couples who divorce, I mean, discipline couples who divorce without biblical precedent, I venture to say, it would happen less. 1 Timothy 5.20, if someone insists on sin, they're to be confronted in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And so if you're a member of Southside, we tell you this on the front end, not just divorce, although divorce tends to be a common one. If you are divorcing your spouse without a biblical precedent, which there are two we'll talk about, and you insist on it and you will not repent, you will be disciplined from this church. You will be excommunicated from this church. And I venture to say when we do that, I hope we never do, but if we have to do that eventually, what is that going to do for the rest of the congregation and married couples in particular? It's got a sobering effect. That's what 1 Timothy 5 says. There'll be a reverential fear of the Lord. I don't want that to happen. Let's get our stuff in order because that's where this leads. Add to that, pastors are scared to teach on this topic because people may leave, which is sadly true. And I think it's just going to get worse. I fully believe that I will see a day where a sermon like I'm about to preach will lock a brother up. Y'all better take care of my family if that happens. And pastors are hesitant because, again, divorce is ubiquitous and our congregations are full of people who've been divorced. And so we don't want to offend. And so we just don't, we don't go there. And we don't talk about just how bad it is. But, friends, the consequences of divorce are truly horrendous. Not only is it a grievous violation of your solemn vows before God, but I want to talk about what so many don't talk about, and that's just some of the destructive social consequences of divorce. It's the gift that keeps on taking. Y'all know that I'm not a Roman Catholic by any stretch of the matter. I'm a capital P Protestant, but I love the way the catechism of the Catholic Church puts it. Divorce introduces disorder into the family and into society. This disorder brings grave harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by the separation of their parents and often torn between them, and because of its contagious effect, which makes it truly a plague on society. Those who are divorced suffer from higher rates of alcoholism, illness, depression, mental illness, and suicide. One Yale researcher found that the effect of divorce on your health is the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. After a divorce, many fathers gradually check out 
disengage from their children. Many mothers display less emotional warmth. They monitor their children less effectively. They're harsher and more erratic in their discipline. Boys fight with their mothers more following divorce. If my mama didn't say amen out loud, she said it in her heart. We've been there. We can joke about it now because God's been gracious, but we had some hard years. These eroded parental ties often continue into the child's adult years. Divorce changes families. Now there are all sorts of different relationships and expectations often unmet. You've got step parents, challenges visiting parents, step siblings. The parent-child relationship changes radically. Rarely does it actually end conflict. It often worsens it. It doesn't alleviate fighting. It often exacerbates it. You've got to deal now with custody issues, support issues, disagreements over how to parent, disagreements over what to discipline, over how to discipline, if to discipline, what to do with religious holidays, birthdays, family occasions, PTA meetings, recitals, where do the report cards go, where do medical reports mail to, who chooses doctors, and on and on and on. Study after study also shows that divorce is contagious. It's infectious. Divorce begets divorce begets divorce. We don't think long-term enough, friends. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we ought to fight for marriages and you ought to fight for your own marriage is that you're serving your great-great-grandkids by doing so. Children from divorced homes are more likely to cohabit, more likely to have children out of wedlock. They have lower levels of academic achievement, more likely to be involved in various infractions in school and delinquency, incarceration, substance abuse, Children from divorce suffer more anxiety, depression, higher incidence of headaches, violence, rage, difficulty sleeping, excessive worry. They're likely to have lower self-esteem, more likely to commit suicide. And where they escape some of these more clinical problems, they suffer disproportionately from worrying about parents attending things like their weddings or their graduations. They feel more lonely. They resent the fact that their parents' divorce often make them take more adult responsibilities Prematurely, they wrestle with divided loyalties between parents. Divorce leads a trail. It leaves a trail of broken homes, traumatized children, and defamation of the marriage, and a false picture of Christ and the church. It is utterly tragic. And we need to be able to say that today, more than ever. Because it's now so common that no one even thinks it's wrong anymore. Only 21% of Americans now think that divorce is morally wrong. Tragically, now people are celebrating. Sometime you want to get sick to your stomach, just Google divorce cakes. Even Christians, way back in 2004, which feels like a century ago, Barna surveyed born-again Christians. So not just Christians, but those who say they're born again, and only half, 52%, said that it would be sin for a married couple to divorce without one of, having them, one of them having committed adultery. Only half. And friends, what I just want you to know is what we say often at Southside is God is wiser than we are. God knows best. His wisdom is best. Job chapter 12, with him are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. So, Matthew 19, what does the Lord Jesus Christ say? The head of the church. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. 
Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, it's important to know there was actually a lot of debate going on in the day of Jesus. We talked about this back in Matthew chapter 5. You had two schools of rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, and Hillel was very loose. Uh, A man could divorce his wife for very trivial reasons, even including petty reasons like burning the food. There was one rabbi, Akiba, from this school who took this view, and he said that a man could divorce his wife if someone more attractive came along. So this school is very loose. But Shammai had the more strict view, and by this time, the loose view had become the norm among the Jewish people. They were misreading Deuteronomy chapter 24 that we looked at back in Matthew chapter 5. But Shammai taught that divorce was only permissible with sexual immorality. Well, let's look at chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 4. What does Jesus say? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore? God has joined together. Let not man separate. Oh, man, there's so much here. You know, 100 years ago, we could read this verse and just move right along. Today, we've got to look at every word of this passage. There's an entire worldview here now that we've got to teach and reteach. First, notice that Jesus appeals to Scripture. He says what he said so often in this gospel. Haven't you read? You know we've got a book. Don't you know it? Four times, Justin Matthew, he says that very question. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? God has spoken about it. It is written. So here you have it. The Son of God points to the Word of God. Remember Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the the law. I came to bring it to its fulfillment. And and not a dot, not an iota. It's like the dot on an I, crossing of a T, will pass away until all is accomplished. The Son of God points to the Word of God. And notice how Jesus describes the Bible. He says, notice who Jesus says, said this. He who created them from the beginning said. What's interesting, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, where Jesus is quoting, it's actually not God speaking. It's just Moses narrating what's going on. But notice who said it according to Jesus. He who created it. The creator said it. Even if it wasn't a direct quotation From the Creator, it's Scripture, because for Jesus, what Scripture says, God says. And He says that God's Word is clear. Second, notice that Jesus just assumes binary gender. From the beginning, the Creator made us male and female. We're not the Creator, therefore, we don't have the right to redefine humanity, and we've got to be gentle and sensitive, but clear that the transgender movement is rebellion against the maker. It says, I know better than you. It says, my interior feelings trump your design and your word, and it is tearing kids and families apart. Jesus just assumes it. Third, Jesus quoting Genesis says, there is to be a leaving and a cleaving. 
There's to be a new priority that is established, which can sometimes be hard, especially for parents giving away their children. But there's a new priority established. And the marriage relationship is to be set above the parent-child relationship. And parents, your kids need to know that. You love your kids, you love your spouse more. Your kids need to know there is a priority in this relationship. We don't want child-centered homes. Those aren't good for kids and they're not good for families and ultimately society. There's a leaving and a cleaving. They are to cleave to one another. It's to adhere firmly, closely, loyally, unswervingly. They're to become their own family unit and they become one flesh. One flesh clearly refers to the physical union, but it's more than that. Physical union brings metaphysical communion. This is why, friends, sex is never casual. This is why hookups are so disintegrating. Keep your finger in Matthew 19. Flip over a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Physical union brings metaphysical communion. It's more than just physical. Notice how the Apostle Paul describes sexual immorality. And the term is the same term we're going to see in Matthew 19, verse 9. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh, quoting from Genesis 2 again. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spear with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Because it brings a one flesh union, and that is to only happen with one person. That is your spouse. It points to complete unity, a profound solidarity, total personal fellowship. One author writes that one flesh is the profound fusion of two lives into one. Shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. One flesh means oneness in every way. Everything is to be shared. The vision and the mission and the children and the checking accounts and the goals and the bed. And so really, notice Jesus has already answered their question before directly addressing it, hasn't he? John Calvin, whose birthday is today, says, he who divorces his wife tears from himself half of himself. And so because of this, divorce is not an option. That's what Jesus says. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus believed that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it is indissoluble. Notice, it is God that joins the man and the woman into one flesh. Marriage is God's doing, what God has joined together. Nature doesn't join us. Love doesn't join us. God joins us. Marriage is a divine institution, not a human convention. Therefore, no man 
has the right to tamper with it or change it or redefine it. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. This word joined together, it's a unique word actually. It's literally yoked together. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the danger of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It's a, it's a labor image. It's a work image, right? You have two oxen that are yoked together with that, that wood that helps them do more, go further, faster as they are yoked together. This is the language Jesus uses here. Two oxen plowing. We are united for many reasons, and one of them is to work together for a common mission. Marriage is to be industrious. It's to be productive. Remember way back in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 1, what's the first command in Scripture? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take dominion of the world as God's representative. The man is to rule and subdue, and God creates Eve to come alongside him and to be his helper, and they both take ground for the sake of the kingdom of God, right? Make babies, make culture. Do y'all remember Genesis 1 to 3? You know, Alicia and I, have our struggles in marriage, you know, a very, very dangerous actually temptation is to look at pastors and put them on some type of pedestal. Uh, and same with our marriage as if we're problem free. We have our issues, we have our bumps, but by God's grace, I feel like we have a healthy marriage and it's for a few reasons. One of them is that we repent a lot. <laughs> the key to a healthy marriage is regular repentance. But another reason is that we're on mission together. We're pursuing the Lord. The, the best marriage verse in the Bible is Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom, which means seek first the rule of God and to bring that rule to bear everywhere you can and all the rest will be taken care of, including marriage. And so we're on mission together. We have our moments. We are face-to-face, -face, absolutely. We love that. We also have our moments, which is probably more. We're side-by-side, -side, doing work together, ride or die for the glory of Christ, going to bed tired for meaningful work. Forming and sharpening arrows at our stage of life. That's how the Bible speaks of children. Arrows. So we're, we're together, not primarily to meet one another's needs or to fill some emotional gap. Spouses cannot be saviors. And it goes really bad when you expect them to be so. Not primarily to fill some emotional hole, but we're building and shaping a culture. God has yoked us together. And since he's done so, Jesus says, let no one break that bond. What God has joined together, what God has yoked together, let no man separate. So they asked Jesus if they can divorce. Jesus says, no, go read your Bible. But that's not actually what they wanted to hear. And so they ask a follow-up question. A little Torah trap here for Jesus, a little Pentateuch pits. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then? Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And again, they're looking at Deuteronomy 24, and they're misreading it, and they're distorting it. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses doesn't command divorce, as they put it. Rather, he permits it in the case of indecency. Doesn't command anything. And notice what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, because... Of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. How would you think about this? Is Jesus pitting himself against Moses? Well, no, of course not. He has just said, haven't you read Moses? But as we've seen back in chapter 5, the old covenant law 
was temporary by divine design. As New Covenant Christians, we're not under the law. That's why we can wear clothing and mixed fabric, and that's why we can eat pork and shrimp and bacon-wrapped shrimp. We're under the New Covenant now. (laughs) We're not under the Old Covenant law. It was temporary, and this is where this is found. We see that in chapter 5 where Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, which means I came to bring about that to which it pointed to. While it said, don't murder, I'm saying, don't even be angry. While it says, don't commit adultery, I'm saying, don't even lust. He gets at the heart level. And Jesus says in chapter 5, remember, again and again and again, you've heard it said in the Old Covenant, but I say to you, Jesus is the sovereign lawgiver. The Old Covenant law was temporary. And Jesus says this Old Covenant permitted, not commanded, but allowed divorce. Why? Because of the hard-heartedness of Israel. God had taken Israel out of Egypt, but it would take a new covenant to take the Egypt out of Israel. And that's what he brings. And Jesus is offering himself here as the solution to the hardness of hearts. And he says, it wasn't that way from the beginning. Go back to the created order. But then Jesus does give an exception. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Moses allowed it, but I say to you, again, Jesus said that over and over in chapter 5. You've heard it said, I say to you, except for sexual immorality. Some translations, I think especially the King James and its derivatives, translated this word as adultery. It's actually a different word. Adultery is too narrow. The word here actually is the word porneia. Sounds familiar, right? The term means sexual immorality. ESV is a good translation, and it's one of those junk drawer terms, you know? It's a term that fits all kinds of sexual deviancy. So you have, yes, adultery. It does include that, but also incest or bestiality, homosexuality, child molestation, a whole host of Sexual sins, it's a very broad term that encompasses the whole. And so divorce can be biblically permissible when there's sexual immorality. Why? Because it rips apart the one flesh union. And the except for sexual immorality applies to divorce and for remarriage, in my view. I just think that's the clear teaching of the text. But you need to know there are many very, very godly and smart Christians who disagree with what I'm saying and say that there's never a biblical permissible reason to divorce or remarry. I just don't know how they get around these passages. I wouldn't want to try to get around them. Now, Mark and Luke don't have this exception, but they don't need to. Matthew does. And so verse 9 to me is a clear exception to the teaching where there is an area where you can Divorce and remarry if there is sexual immorality. Just, we've been there, but it's been a while. Flip back to Matthew 5. Jesus mentioned this twice, and in both times he mentions this allowance. Chapter 5, verse 31. Matthew 5, 31. Middle of the Sermon on the Mount, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, same word, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says it two times in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think it's quite clear. So if someone divorces their spouse unlawfully, 
without sexual morality and marries another, Jesus, they commit adultery. Why? Because the first marriage still exists before God. And listen, I just realize how countercultural this is. You know, I, I read a lot of nerdy commentators, and uh, they're very objective and usually dense and dry. And this was the first time I've ever seen an exclamation point in a commentary. I thought I wanted to share it with you because he's right on. R.T. France says, if all this seems very remote from our own society with its soaring divorce rates, divorce by mutual consent, and the widespread assumption that marriages cannot be expected to last for a life, it is! Exclamation point. In other words, this teaching is very remote from where we live today. But remember, we're a countercultural society, a contrast community, a city on a hill, salt of the earth. He goes on to say, Jesus is laying down a challenge to accepted norms and demanding a complete rethinking of marriage on the basis not of human convenience, but the purpose of God for his creation. Divorce is never God's will. Malachi 2 says he hates it. However, it is allowable in two circumstances. Here in our passage, sexual immorality and in 1 Corinthians 7, when a person is deserted by an unbeliever. And of course, Romans 7 says that death dissolves a marriage. So two biblically permissible areas, sexual immorality, desertion by an unbeliever. Now, does this mean that a person should divorce when there is sexual immorality? No. Like I said, I don't think divorce is ever God's will. I think reconciliation is always God's will. We should always fight for the marriage. We are those, right, who confess and repent and forgive and reconcile and wash and repeat. Remember chapter 18, verse 21, flip back there. And by the way, the context of this is not incidental. Chapter 18, verse 21, Peter came up, said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's the goal. And so what does this mean for us? Again, if you're divorced, there is grace, forgiveness, mercy, and hope. Jesus came to save sinners. The past is the past. Look at me. If you've trusted Christ, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Clean slate because of the blood of Christ. Now, resolve to move forward faithfully. Wherever you are in life, elevate your view of the institution of marriage. Jesus here finds it foundationally significant. Some are called to a life of celibacy. Again, next week, we'll talk all about it. But for most people in history, marriage is God's will. And so all of us as the people of God need to champion the clear biblical fact that God's will is lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. If you're not married but want to be married, begin your premarital counseling very early. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You really can't 
begin too early, in my opinion. We actually have some marriage books for kids on our website, ssbaptist.org. Look at resources for reading. Start reading to your three-year-old about marriage. Kids, let me ask you something just by raising your hands. How many of you know, kids, what you want to be when you grow up? Just raise your hand. I think that's everybody. All right. So I could ask you what you would want to be. Some of you want to be a teacher. Some of you want to be professional athletes. That's where I wanted to be too. Let me just give you some advice. Get a plan B. <laughs> Veterinarian, firefighter, whatever it may be. Praise God. Good work. You know what is way more important than being a teacher, veterinarian, firefighter, or professional athlete? Being a mother and a wife or being a father and a husband. We spend 12, 16, in my case, 28 years educating ourselves for whatever vocation we'll call us to when foundationally, if you're called to marriage, being a wife or being a husband is way more important. So begin early. Marriage is one of the most important tasks, but also one of the most difficult tasks God will call you to. So begin preparation early. If you're married, stay married. Don't divorce. Don't even use the D word. It's just not an option. It's not on the table, which actually solidifies the marriage. A couple of researchers studied over 2,000 married couples over an eight-year span and found that, quote, adopting more favorable attitudes toward divorce appears to undermine marital quality in the long run, end quote. Christians don't adopt more favorable attitudes towards divorce. And so commit to keep your vow. Even when it gets hard, that's why those vows say what they do. You vowed before God and your family and your church family. Biblically, there is no category for falling out of love. We fall out of repentance. Our marriages are based on more than feelings. Feelings come and go. Praise God, they come at times. But they're flickering flames. They're terrible leaders. They're good followers. Love in the Bible, it's a commitment. Love in the Bible is defined by Calvary. You made a vow, so keep it. As Bonhoeffer once said in a wedding sermon, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Or as one Puritan put it, first choose your love, then love your choice. And when you get in trouble, get help. That's what the local church is here for. Fight for the marriage for the sake of your great-great-grandkids. Keep growing in your marriage. Don't coast. Keep talking. Keep dating. Read books together. Watch solid resources together. Go to seminars. Prioritize our Southside date nights. The reason for our date nights that the Cohen's put a ton of work in is to strengthen your marriage. Do a D group with a book on marriage. Paul Tripp, Timothy Keller, Wayne Mack, why? Well, we've seen a number of reasons, but remember the ultimate purpose of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting Genesis 2. Then listen to Paul's reflection on Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it 
way back in Genesis 2 in the institution of marriage, it refers to Christ and the church. Incredible. Long before God sent Jesus to redeem his bride. He planned it before he created. Long before that, he instituted marriage to be a display, an advertisement, a pointer. God ordained marriage to point to the bond between Christ and the church. That's why a divorce should be seen as so tragic. Your marriage exists to display the covenant-keeping love of Christ for his church. Through your marriage, preach a faithful gospel. May God give us the grace to do so. Let's pray.